Good day, everyone. It's nice to have all of you here today. We're glad you joined us for this keynote presentation of the QMC EMS Board and Caller. Today joining us is Bob Holdsworth. Bob is president of the Holdsworth Group. And since 1988, as the president of the group, he's been able to use his diverse experience to help grow three multi-million dollar businesses, including one that boasted both a 95% staff and 93% client retention rate over a 28-year period. Bob has advised business owners in 33 different industry segments, ranging in size from home-based solopreneurs to Fortune 100 companies on ways to effectively and profitably separate themselves from the pack. In 2013, Bob earned the title of the best-selling author based on his number one hot release EMS book titled Wading into Chaos Inside the Life of a Paramedic. He is also a co-author of Secrets of Peak Performers, Wealth-Creating Strategies from the World's Most Successful Entrepreneurs. Bob, we're glad you joined us today. Thanks for being here. I'm sure your topic of EMS economics is going to get a lot of attention and questions today. Thanks for joining us. We're glad you're here. Without any further ado, ladies and gentlemen, Bob Holdsworth. So first part of this is, uh, and hopefully everybody on the call is at an organization that has a budget. Um, you've created a budget. It doesn't have to be crazy detailed. It depends on the size of your organization, how much of a budget you need, but you do need to have one. Uh, that budget is a financial roadmap for you for the course of the year. And then pro forma budgets take you out two, three, five years about where you want to go. Um, it should include, uh, you know, the year to date. So you are looking at it as a, as a point of progress. How far are we? How far off were we? Why are we off? That's a great question. Why is that not what we thought it was going to be? And it is a planning tool for you. Because if you're going to be going down the road of capital improvement, so you've got a four-truck ambulance company, um, and you are you know that in the next three years you're going to have to replace a couple of trucks, you know how are we going to do that? Are we going to fund it? Are we going to fundraise for it? Is it part of our municipal subsidy if we have one, uh, or are we going to decide that we don't want to buy the trucks? We rather lease the trucks, uh, and then we're just going to have operating lease expenses in that budget. And that's becoming a very popular option so that you don't have to come up with $250,000 for a truck. You only have to come up with $2,800 a month for that truck over a period of five years or, or whatever the number works out to be based on how long you finance it for. And at the end, you give the key back if the truck's not working out for you or, and you get a new one. So you forced capital replacement rather than it's 12 years old and I've got bailing wire, duct tape, and chewing gum holding it together. And God, I hope it makes it all the way to the hospital and back because we can't afford it. So it is a planning tool. The budget should be part of that planning tool. The other thing is, and this is coming up in the Medicare cost study, is you have to capture true costs. And that includes in-kind services. If you're not familiar with that accounting term, in-kind services are things like the town picks up our workers comp for us as a courtesy. The town gives us fuel as a courtesy. Um, we barter with the town uh, parks and rec department and they come out and mow our grass. Those types of things are pay things we would have had to pay for, but there's a value to those that need to be included in this overall cost of doing business. So what a budget is not is spending approval. Just because you have $10,000 in a line item does not mean you have to spend $9,999.99. I know the municipal people who are on here are going, yeah, but if I don't, I'm going to lose it. Um, and that may be true. And when you go through and you get your, your budget approval from your municipality, if you are in that particular mindset rather or operational uh, organization type rather than a private company or a nonprofit company. Um, some municipalities allow for line item transfers during the course of the year, some don't. So if you don't have the ability to transfer line item money from medical expenses to training because in the middle of the year you didn't need as many, many uh, replacement uh, supplies, but you did have people going to um, a coding class, uh, and things along those lines, um, then you need to be even more 
sharp pointed with your pencil when you plan the line items uh, from the beginning. So budget complexity really is driven off of the type of the organization you have. Um, I've seen everybody run uh, organizations that have multi-page multi spreadsheets every single month that are doing variance reports um, as to why you're, you're not hitting your numbers or you're over your numbers or what have you, all the way down to uh, simple QuickBooks budget uh, that you can do. And even people running it on paper, although in this day and age, I really don't recognize that as a, as a good option for you. You should have it backed up where if something happens, you, you know, can replicate it and get it back. It should be computerized, as I said. It should be detailed enough to know how you're spending your money. And one of my pet peeves is people in the vehicle side of their budget, for example. They have four, they have four trucks. And everything I'm gonna talk about today is gonna to be the smaller three to four truck system. You can up, upscale or downscale as needed, but that's kind of the sweet spot. Four to five trucks is a lot of our services out there. Um, you should know how you're spending your money. So let's say you have four trucks in the system and you're, you have line item budgets for things like um, repairs, maintenance, fuel oil, all that sort of thing. Do not make the mistake of lumping all of that into one account, especially on the repairs and maintenance side. Break out the receipts and the repairs and maintenance by unit. Because you may have the brand new truck that's costing you a bloody fortune to keep on the road. And if you don't know that, and you can't, you can't make a decision about whether you keep that truck or not. So the truck that's been in six times because it's got a, it's got a transmission problem, and some of it's not under warranty, and you've got downtime. You need to be able to go back and go, I spent $30,000 in maintenance this year, but unit six, or unit four, cost me 5,000 of that. It helps you make decisions. If you have it as a lump line item, you can't do that. Um, comparing the actual budget to the previous year's budget and to the current year's spending, very important to look, look back and see where your numbers are. And on a computerized model, it'll come up and tell you that there's a variance of 50%, 30%, whatever it is. You have the ability to drill down and figure out why that is. And the more you do, can you see, are we using something? Are we buying something that's more expensive than we used to? Do we need to continue to buy that at that expense point? Or is there a replacement that can be more cost-effective? Um, people always use numeric accounts. I prefer named accounts so I can look really quickly and find what I'm looking for uh, rather than trying to remember that, you know, account number 100.6.2.3 is whatever it is. It's easier to say it's, Unit one, unit two, and unit three, and unit four, you know, uh, maintenance and fuel and what have you. So take a look at your budget, make it as, as easy to understand as possible for everybody, make it something that is able to be passed on to the next generation of manager fairly easy and have them pick it up. Um, just like we don't use crazy abbreviations on our trip reports, we shouldn't be using crazy names and, and numbers in our budget. It makes it hard for people to understand. And if you ever have to show a budget to a municipal leader or a board of finance or whatever, um, if you can't explain it really, really well, you're going to get tagged with, I think they're hiding something, as opposed to transparency. You'll hear that a couple of times today. Um, you should be transparent about it if you're asking them for money. That's just my two cents. So you should know some basic numbers and metrics about your business. You should know what it costs you to put a truck on the road. Whether you get any revenue from that, what does it cost you to do a trip? What does it cost you to do a transport? And then what's the revenue that you average per call? So you could figure these numbers out. Cost, if you're gonna go after a subsidy and you're gonna use one of, one of the ways of getting a subsidy is, cost per, is cost per capita. So if I have, and you'll see some examples in a couple minutes, if you have a budget and there's 25,000 people in the community and you're asking them for a subsidy to make up any shortfalls that you have, that shortfall divided by the population is a per capita subsidy. If you have more than three, two to three trucks, unit hour utilization is an important number to know, to know whether or not you're putting a truck on the road for the right reason at the right time for the right hours. 
And I'll show you an example where you could easily make, by knowing those numbers, you could easily make some adjustments that would save you a fair amount of money. But if you don't do the science fair project and do that math, you'll never know. And then you need to know your revenue by source. And this is where QMC comes in. Um, you ask them for, your, for their payer mix, for your payer mix. So they should be able to tell you how many, who are your big predominant insurance players, private insurance? What percentage of your money comes from Medicare? What percentage comes from Medicaid? What percentage is self-pay? You should know those numbers because not only it does it help drive what you do decision-wise, it is extremely important for you to go to a municipal leader and say, I've squeezed the rock as hard as I can. These are the people that we are serving and to show them the, the amount of money you lose on every trip, every time you put a patient on the stretcher that is either Medicare or Medicaid, you show them the discounted price point the minute that person's butt hits your stretcher that you can't recover. And this is why we're asking for a subsidy. It helps you build that case. And I'll show you that before in, in probably in about 10 minutes, why that's important and how we do that for, we used to do it for our clients and now QMC does it for theirs. So let's go back and look at those matrix and figure out how to do that. So I'm gonna make it really easy for everybody. Let's assume that the budget for your organization is a million bucks for the year. And you have 2,500 responses, not transports, responses. And it is very important that when you are talking to a municipal leader and asking them for any kind of money or reporting your activity, that you show them how active you are, show them how many transports you're doing, because you have to staff for the responses. Right now, the model is you get paid for the transports. So when you say, I have to have two trucks, three trucks, four trucks on because we're getting this number of calls at, this, at, at these frequencies, but I'm only generating revenue from this amount, this is why we're having a shortfall. So we're building the case as we go through. So cost per trip is your budget divided by your responses. In this case, that comes out to $400 a trip. So for you to turn on the truck, go to a call, it costs you 400 bucks under this scenario, right? Now you build layer, the second layer of the case. What does it cost me to do a transport? So now I have the budget divided by the actual number of transports. So the million dollar budget, of that 2,500 calls that we were doing before, the responses, we're only transporting 1,850 of them. So now those trips, are co it's costing me $540 plus to do a transport. Now you, you've got a 26% dry run rate, and you've only and you get 74% transport completion. The dry run rate is something to explain to the leaders as well. I have to staff for that. I have expenses for that, but I can't get any revenue for that. 26% in most cases is a little high. That number allows you to go back and talk to dispatch and say, okay, are our protocols right? Are we going to the right amount of stuff? Are they sending us to anything just because they can? Um, and if we can cut that dry run rate back, I may be able to adjust staffing. So it gives you a lot of tools to kind of figure out what's going on. If anybody have any questions so far? Bob, actually, we do have two questions that have come in. Of course, okay. they've asked me to pose them to you because they're just a little shy. Okay. Uh, no problem. So our first one uh, actually comes out of Maine, the state of Maine, Bob. Okay. Uh, and you may have covered this in a part of it, but it came in early and it said, we're a volunteer organization. Our city is cutting most of their funding to us. Okay. One, should we still do a budget? And two, what are the best benchmarks we should use when constructing our budget? Okay, so um, they're, they're, yes, you should do a budget. That, will, will, that, that is your operating document as far as what it's gonna cost you so you know what you're expecting. You're gonna to need to share that with them as well as some of the things that we're talking about now to try to put that funding back. And I don't know what percentage of your budget that you get from the municipality, 
but it's important to know that. So if you're get if your organization will use just my numbers, if your organization has a million dollar budget and you get two hundred and fifty thousand dollars from the community, and I, please stop laughing for those of you who are on here that you've got that that amount of money. But as for an example, if twenty five percent of your budget goes away, you need to go be able to go back to the community and say, we don't like the fact that you're cutting our budget. We understand that you're cutting our budget. Let us show you what that actually means in delivered service. Is if we have to cut 25% of our operation, here's what's gonna to happen to ambulance response. And push these other numbers at them to help justify why they should put the funding back. And I've gone through that with a couple of providers in one case, we actually got the town council to put $200,000 back in the budget by proving to them what it was going to mean in ambulance responses um, if they, in fact, went through with their, uh, with their, what was at that point a very arbitrary cut. So hopefully that helps you. Good. And the second one, Gary? Yes, I do. Um, and Bob, uh, we've had a question come in while you were speaking there. Uh, folks asked if you could, through your talk, could apply some examples to the air ambulance side of the business as well, too, if you could. I, I can, but that is probably the, the place where I have the least amount of experience. Okay. Um, I, I may defer that one back to you. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you, you. You got more experience in that one than I do, but the principles are the same regardless. Um, where in the air ambulance side, you may be talking to hospital systems or facilities about cost per transport and things like that. Uh, and obviously being very cognizant of what's going on in Congress with the, uh, the surprise balance and bills business. and all that sort of thing. Right. Um, but you still need to be able to justify cost per trip, cost per transport, and, and all the things we're talking about. They apply whether it's wheels or rotors. Absolutely. So let me uh, pose the second question to you, Bob, because it's actually uh, kind of similar. So the question says, we're a hospital-based program on paper our program loses dollars every year. Yep. However, our, transport cre our transports create patient days for the hospital. We find the challenge, I'm trying to read this as best I can, we find the challenge in educating our administrators uh, to keep money coming to our services. What, what suggestions do you have outside the budget to educate administrators on the importance when they're only looking at, this thing goes on, only looking at the dollars and cents. Um, first is get a bat. I'm sorry. No, only kidding. Uh, don't, don't do that. Uh, I actually can speak to this. I actually ran a hospital based system uh, and had to justify this. Probably the most important thing that you can do is try to target back to, um, and I don't know if you're doing um, ALS and BLS transfers out of the hospital uh, as well as 911 work bringing patients into the hospital. I'm going to go on that assumption for this answer because I don't know your service orientation. Um, but you're right about the, about the inpatient days. We were able to quantify the level of patients being brought in and show they were trying to figure out why when, the, when we brought the paramedic program to the hospital, suddenly the uh, cardiac rehab program was doubling, then tripling, then quadrupling. And the reason was because we were having better patient outcomes. And the cardiologists, when we originally launched the paramedic program, the cardiologists and the ER docs, ER docs wanted us, cardiologists did not. Uh, fast forward 18 months and the cardiologists were going to the board of directors of the hospital saying, give them anything they want. Because the money we're making from the cardiac rehab program, because they're bringing us patients that are salvageable uh, and they're preempting the MIs, and calling in what are now STEMI alerts, um, before STEMI alerts was a cool title. Um, so we were doing that. We also were going through and showing them the value of having that ready ambulance um, to get that patient off, off of the, uh, the step-down unit and out to another hospital and showing them the circle of life, if you will, or the, the throughput of the hospital you can't get somebody out of the emergency room to get them up to the cardiac care unit because you can't get the cardiac care unit patient down to step down because you can't get the step down patient into a bed because the bed can't clear to go to the nursing home. 
So the value of throughput. So what we do uh, when we're trying to, to put this together is we show dollars created by the service. So that's money in or transfer money out that's not within the healthcare network itself. And then a separate revenue pro forma showing the value of the throughput and the value of cost avoidance. So how long would it take? How long are you waiting for an ambulance? If we weren't here, how long would it take to get an ambulance to move that patient? And what is the cost of nursing, bed care, losing the ability to transfer that patient, um, as well as all of the ancillary departments that benefit from bringing in a patient that's more stable? Good point, well, Bob. That's, that's my starting point for you. So any more or can, should we pick up and keep going? Keep going, Robert. Okay. All right, so we did cost per transport. Uh, now we're going to talk about cost per capita. And again, that was that's that's real easy now, um, as long as you know your your service area uh, per capita and total population. So in this case, assuming you were going to bring in absolutely no money, and you were just going to go for a subsidy to this organization, to the to the town, and say or the county or whomever, and you say we're not going to build a patients. Or in a couple of cases, we've had county uh, commissioners say, we don't want you to build the patients. Oh, okay. I won't build the patients. That means you're going to pay the whole bill. Um, so that million dollar budget now divided by 35,000 people that live in the service area is you're paying me 28 bucks, almost $29 per person for that EMS system. What is more common is the million dollar budget less the revenue equals a shortfall equals divided by and then per capita and you can break it down in the, the agency in Maine may have this opportunity to go back and say listen we're only asking you for um, uh, pick a number we're asking you for fifty thousand dollars fifty thousand dollars is x percentage of our budget and in the service area we're asking you divided by the number of people in the, in the area we're asking you for three dollars and fifty cents per person to keep the staffing the way it is if that makes sense so now you're going to show the, the revenue or the loss per transport. So we're going to go back to what we had before. So we have the total budget minus total revenue. So we're going to assume some collections here. And since it's QMC, we're going to assume very high collections because they're really good at what they do. So on a million dollars of budget off those 1,800 transports we talked about before, there's $890,000 in collections. Is that realistic? Probably not, but it's a good number to work with. So I have a million dollar budget. I brought in $890,000. It cost me 540 bucks per trip, cost per trip. I brought in revenue, 890 divided by those transports, $481 a trip. I'm looking to you, subsidizer, whether it's county, city, hospital base, whatever to make up $59 per transport. I've done everything I can. I'm still $59 short every time I turn a wheel. So my subsidy request to you is based only on making me whole because I have already done a lean budget. So to go back to the folks from Maine, if you don't have a budget document to tie back to, you have no way to defend the rest of these points. So you have to have that. And you have to be able to defend it. You have to be able to say, this is why it's costing us this for radio service and, 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 and medical supplies and oxygen and all that sort of stuff. So the budget drives more than just your internal decisions. It also drives these calculations to be able to go to somebody looking for money. Any, before I go on to the next segment, anything there, Gary? Yes, okay. So does that mean just putting this out there? Is everybody trying to figure out that they don't want to do any more math or just was I that clear that you're all, oh, all got it down pat? I'll speak for the 30 plus people attending, Bob. It's, it's very clear. You're, you're right on. Okay. Just Put making people. sure everybody's got it. It's really important that you understand how to do this and actually go back. Your homework is not to hang up off of this, off of this webinar and say that was really neat information. It's to go back and do these calculations. And I did promise, um, Gary, that if I will make the slides available in a PDF format, just 
ask Gary for them um, or he'll post them somewhere or he'll tell you what that housekeeping is. Um, but it'll take me a, a little while after we close this out uh, to make them available to Gary. So if you have more than a couple of trucks on the road, unit hour utilization is important. And unit hour utilization is a formula that divides the number of calls that you're doing divided by the number of hours that you're staffing. Most services try to get to 0.4 or 0.5, meaning that for every ambulance you're putting on the road, it's doing something 40 to 50% of the time. Because you can run a higher number if you want to, but now you're running the risk that that ambulance is going to be deployed and not available. And then you may still have trucks on the road, but you may be missing calls. Um, so there's a fine line there and, and people look at the numbers. Some people staff and do UHUs by the day, some by the week, some by the hour. The bigger companies do it by the hour and they'll, they'll pull a truck or put a truck up. So once that unit hour utilization number goes above 0.5, there's a 50% chance that that unit will be unavailable for a call. So, and remember when you're calculating UHUs, it's based on the number of requests per service, not the number of transports. The other thing is when you are looking at this, you do have to take into account your service area. So for the folks in Maine, Jen, I have a couple of uh, clients in the Midwest. Their transport times are an hour. They're at the hospital for 40 minutes. So every time they take a call, they're gone for three hours. So you do have to factor that in and maybe staff a little bit more than you normally would and tolerate numbers that are not as close to 0.4 or 0.5 because your what we call time on task is much, much longer than if you're in New York City and you've got a hospital six blocks away and you can, you can do two calls in an hour as opposed to one call in three. So we'll use the three truck system. Um, I'm, so you have ambulance one runs 24 seven, ambulance two runs 16 hours a day, seven days a week, and EMS threes on Monday through Friday for 12 hours. So the calculation, don't try to do this, the next slide actually is the cheat slide. Um, what's the total number of hours? Let's assume a call volume for this argument of 4,200 responses a year. What would the UHU be? So, next slide. There's the math. That's the easiest math you'll ever see from me with the answers already plugged in. So the first truck, 8,700 hours, 24, seven. Next is 58, next is 31. There's 17,000 hours staffed, 4,200 responses, UHU of almost 0.24. So if I was in a, an area where I was doing three hour responses round trip, I might have to live with this. If I'm a city service or, or a suburban service, I may not want to live with this. And I may have been told by my boss, you need to cut hours and you need to cut payroll. So I'm going to throw it out to the crowd and see if anybody gets this right. Where would you, as a manager, cut first? Would you cut the 24-hour truck? Would you cut the 16-hour truck? Or would you cut the 12-hour truck? So we'll let the Jeopardy music play for a second. Feel free to type in your answers, folks. Yeah, see if anybody wants to take a shot at this. Three, two, one. Oh, somebody raised a hand. Let's see here. Oh, we've got a couple people. Oh, yeah. Anybody give you an answer? Sean, do you want to give an answer? Uh, is that dependent on call volume for time of day? That's one of the things you have to take into account. But let's, for, let's just say it's holistic for the sake of argument here. Let's say we've not done a time of day analysis. Well, now I'm out. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that's okay. All right, anybody else? Yeah, let's go ahead, Stace. Do you want to give it a try? 
hear me? Yeah, we hear you loud and clear. <laughs> um, I was just kind of going with the 12 hour. Okay. That is, that is the most common answer is I'm going to cut the 12 hour. I'm going to cut the 12 hour truck back. And why is that Bob? Because it looks like it's the smallest truck. It's only on Monday through Friday. Uh, so it looks like it's the easiest one to pick. Sean's point is the next piece of the analysis is you need to look at time of day and day of week. And more than likely, you're going to find that that 16-hour truck has the ability to get cut back a little bit because you probably need the third truck up, especially during peak hours, uh, Monday through Friday. So you may be able to cut that EMS-2 truck back to 12 hours. It might be a staggered 12 hours from EMS-3, so you get a little bit more coverage throughout the course of the day. But if you cut four hours a day on certain days out of EMS-2, you can probably get equal the coverage, but still save on payroll. So you're both right. Stacy, you, you went for, let's cut some hours. And Sean, you said, but let's figure out what day of the week and time of day is the best hours to cut. And what everybody always does when they throw a truck up, especially the smaller services, and miraculously, the truck goes up from six to six. It's like throw mud at the wall and that's the time. And reality is you really need to look at your service area and you need to stagger those trucks. And I'm, I'm willing to bet that if you put on EMS two, um, you know, seven to seven, seven, seven to nine, and then EMS three had a different starting point, you ramp up into your day and you ramp across your day and you actually covered more of the waterfront of that 24 hour block rather than traditional shift times um, and then leave yourself a hole. So, but that's the way we use this to look at how to deploy properly and how to maximize the payroll that we're spending. Okay, so now the primer for some of, for, for most of you probably know this, some may not. So with, what are our current sources of funding? User fees uh, and billing revenue, subsidies, taxing districts. Some of you have that. We have one in the town that I'm in. Uh, it's a fire tax. Fire department runs the ambulance. Fundraising and subscriptions. Fundraising is, you know, can be an annual a capital campaign, can be an annual campaign. Subscriptions, you need to know in your state if you can run them. Not every state allows them. I'm in the state of Connecticut. I can't do a subscription campaign. They're illegal. Um, going up to uh, a couple of the neighboring states, they can they can do them. Their insurance commission allows them. Medicare doesn't care. It's up to the state insurance commission as to whether or not you can run them or not. Uh, grants and other program fees. So if you have education, CPR, first aid, EMT, grow your own programs, um, safety and injury prevention programs, uh, and mobile uh, integrated health um, Right this point, there's no not a lot of money for that, but there are several states that are uh, trying programs that are either being funded by a hospital uh, or or a carrier uh, to try to see if it works. Uh, Medicaid is is trying a few programs. Um, Blue Cross Blue Shield just launched a program in one state where they're gonna uh, they're gonna give it a shot. Um, and then there's several hospitals that are trying it, trying to decrease the volume of patients hitting their emergency room. So there is a source of funding there for some of those out outreach programs. Managing your reimbursement, having a good partner is critical to do that. We were a good partner for our clients. Our clients transitioned over to QMC. They have been a great partner in, in continuing the, the legacy with, uh, with their clients. And um, they have a, a, a large swath of clients across the country and do a, a great job managing that resource and the reimbursement for them. But it's extremely important that everybody understands, and I know QMC Compliance understands this just as, as we did. In today's market, it's not about volume, and it's not, it's, it's not just about volume. It's about good volume. It's about efficient collections. And that starts with field people. You can't throw everything at the billing office and expect that they're going to make you know, uh, gold out of sand. Documenting, training your crews to understand why signatures are important, gathering those signatures getting good insurance information so that the you're, you're, I used to tell people for years, 
you, your job is to load the gun for me. My job is to fire it at the insurance companies. Those bullets are signatures and good PCRs with as much information as possible. Gotten to the billing office as quickly as you can do it. Uh, preferably if you can get them in 48 to 72 hours. Um, that's from time of call. That's awesome. Um, the size of your service dictates whether it should be daily. Um, I would suggest that under no circumstances should it be any uh, longer than weekly if you're a very small volume, um, mid-sized volume every couple of days. Um, or you can set it up so it goes more more, more efficiently than that. Bob, Primary. can I stop you for a second? Sure. So uh, I just uh, a little story, if I can just interject. When you your last slide noted it was it's not just about volume. I think there's a misnomer out there, and I just had this happen to me uh, probably in the first quarter of 2019. I had an ambulance uh, service leader actually come into my office here in Pittsburgh and said uh, they were an organization that's struggled. And then I think that's we're not uh, talking out of school when I say that. And uh, they come in and he said, manna from heaven was the words he used. And I said, why is that? He goes, we're going to be taking over another community and our call volume is going to go way up. I said, oh, that's, that's great. The other ambulance services in town had closed down. And I said, well, why are they leaving town? Uh, didn't know. And I uh -huh. said, well, have you looked at your payer mix? And he said, well, no, but we're going to get, and I can't remember the number of 500 or 1,000 more calls a year. And, uh, and I said to him, well, you better look at that payer mix because if you go back to one of your earlier slides before this one, uh, you mentioned the cost of pulling that ambulance out of the garage. Yep. So, uh, <clears throat> needless to say, the volume does not dictate better no. days ahead. Absolutely not. And the last four or five slides are talking about when you think about taking over a community or bidding on a community, things you need to look at and know. So we will talk about that very issue in a couple minutes. So, so I'm going to go through this fairly quickly because the questions have been good. I know we have uh, roughly an hour. Um, and I think we're coming up pretty close to the 45 minute mark already. So, uh, bear with me as I go through a couple of slides, like a gerbil on crack until we get in the middle. <laughs> you didn't think I was going to say it, did you? No. Yeah. I, no, I pull no punches here. So primary payers, third party, Medicare and Medicaid, non-third party insurance is private pay, so, you know, self pay. Medicare. Some people don't know the difference. Medicare Part A, you get it at 65. It covers the hospital, catastrophic care. Medicare B is actually bought by the beneficiary. They forget that they buy it because it usually comes out of their Medicare check before they ever see it, before the deposit. It covers doctor, medical suppliers, and it covers ambulance. You can have a, six, you can have a Medicare eligible person that does not have Part B coverage because they opted not to buy it. So it's important when you're training your people to ask them for the Medicare number so that the QMC folks can actually run it uh, and make sure it goes through the eligibility system to see if they have it. But it is possible to have a senior citizen that doesn't have ambulance coverage. Rare, but it is possible. And because they bought it, they agreed to something, which is the 80-20 system. They agreed that when you take assignment on a call, which almost everybody does at this point, you agree to a reduced rate, you agree to get directly paid. Um, Non-assignment means that you would bill the patient for 100% of the bill and, and let them chase Medicare. You can do it. There are some services in the country that do that. You've got to have a whole lot of revenue behind you to run the organization while you wait for this. So it's really not feasible for most. But that 80-20 system says the you accept what Medicare says they're going to pay you, hence the cost analysis that they're doing to see if they should be paying us right. Although as history repeats itself, and Gary and I were talking about this earlier, the last two times they've done cost analysis, they've said, hey, we underpaid you, we're cutting your rate. So we'll see if this time hold true and maybe the third time is the charm. Medicare pays 80% of what they deem as the allowable and publish as the allowable rate. The patient is responsible for 20%. That's their copay. You have to bill it, right? You cannot, if you're a municipality, the only way you get around not billing that copay is if you're a municipality and tax revenue is subsidizing you 
and then you apply for a waiver and you can not do that. But I don't know why you'd want to do that. But there are some people who do. Um, I'm a capitalist and I think that you should get paid and the taxpayers should pay some support. But I think that insurance for the users, especially high volume users, should go to them. Um, if, if you routinely waive the copayments without certain restrictions, certain criteria meeting your service, the way your service is set up, it's fraud. You will get caught and it's a bad day when guys in blue jackets uh, with yellow letters that say FBI and HSS show up at your, at your, at your door. That is not the day you want to be working. So I'll give you an example of how this works. Uh, let's say your EMS base rate uh, is 400 bucks. Medicare says, that's nice, that's your retail rate, we don't really care. The allowable for BLS in your region is 300 bucks. We're gonna pay you 80% of the 300 bucks, which is 240. You chase the patient for 60 bucks. That's private pay, that's supplemental insurance, that's the AARP coverage. Um, if they have gotten a Medicare HMO plan, it's all covered, but those are now have all kinds of craziness to them, so they're not as good as they used to be. The thing that's important for your municipal leaders and others to understand, and for the hospital-based folks, that they should understand, which they probably do, but they need to see it tied to your department, um, not just the hospital as a whole, is that the difference between that 400 and the 300 allowable rate is considered a contractual allowance. The minute that person's butt hit your stretcher, you were down 100 bucks because you've you're taking assignment from, from Medicare. So. This is important for everybody to get. So if there's a question on this, now's the time to ask because you need to understand this because your payer mix affects this when you look at it. So then, billing's a game. I call it the, the, the billing game. Side one is treatment protocols. The state you're in says this is how you treat a chest pain. The response regulations say this is how you're going to respond, and you're going to respond BLS, ALS, whatever it is that you're licensed to do or certified to do, and you're going to take care of the patient at that level based on the treatment protocols, because that's your assigned area. And then the payment rules are the bottom, and that's usually the part that falls out, because they don't, the treatment protocols don't take into account anybody's ability to pay. And the regulations in 911 say you go regardless, you don't have the ability to say, oh. Medicaid, no, don't get enough, we're not going. So you have to go, you have to treat, and then you have to figure out how to get paid. We are the only medical niche that figures out if we're getting paid and how much after we've provided service. Everybody else does a walletectomy in the front end. The insurance department and Medicare and Medicaid have the ability to decide after the fact if they should have paid us, if they paid us too much, and can go back and reach back into our pockets later on and try to take that money back. Uh, through uh, offsets. So we want to make sure that you get it on the front end and keep it. The Affordable Care Act came into play and we said, well, okay, well, this is going to be maybe good, maybe bad. My thought process at the time when this came out was that um, the, out, the prediction where it says outcome to date on your slide, that originally said what we believe is going to happen, that Medicare would go up slightly, it has, the Medicaid population has increased, which is bad for EMS, because those are typically the least paid claims, the smallest dollar value. Call volume has, in, has increased, because now people are insured, so they feel they can use it, but reimbursement hasn't. And the private payers are now starting to say, well, if it's okay for Medicare and Medicaid, we're gonna apply that same fee schedule to us. And some states have safeguards in place, Connecticut being one of them, uh, where if there's not a contract, they have to pay the retail price set. Other states don't. So people have seen a fair amount of, of decrease in revenue. That creates a bigger hole in the budget. That is why many of you are scratching your head, taking more Advil and going to your communities, asking for money where you've never potentially had to ask before or asking for more. And you have to be able to show them how this has impacted you um, before the ambulance hits the tree. I'm going to fly through this part. Uh, let's just say for the next three slides, uh, having a comprehensive QA process or CQI process, whatever you want to call it, is critical to your success. Making sure that you're going to calls that you should be, 
that you're providing service at the right level, that you're doing good documentation. Um, it's called a number of things, QA, QI, CQI. Um, I do quantify and, and analyze, and then continuous quality improvement. You're, you have to figure out how to make sure that you can hang on to this money when they challenge you. And a very quick story, we had an ambulance provider that was challenged. They were going from a freestanding emergency room to the hospital, both owned by the same entity. Um, Medicare challenged that because they were owned by the same entity and five miles apart, that that was not an appropriate transfer that they should be paying for. And they audited 40 trips. We argued that it was a freestanding ER, did not have complete facilities, and did not have admission capabilities. And those patients were in fact being moved uh, to a higher level of care and pulled all of the run reports and the documentation to show the diagnosis, to show what was that they were being transferred for and why that couldn't be treated in place at the freestanding ER and discharge. And we won 39 of 40. Um, if we had not done a, a good QA program and not had the ability to pull that data in a timely fashion, we would have probably lost 39 of 40. So it is important you can justify your what you did and why, and typically what you did and why a year after you did it. Things that they're looking at now when they do an audit, they look at the dispatch protocols that you have in place. Um, are you validating compliance with the system? Um, are you getting reports from dispatch? And one of the things that I advise you to do uh, at least weekly, depending on the size of your service, Get a report from dispatch. How many calls did they send you on? How many calls, then you look at your own reports and say, okay, how many calls did we log in the system? So let's say dispatch says we sent you out 100 times in a week. You go into the PCR system and there's only 97 trips. So some of them are gonna be canceled, standbys, whatever. Three of them didn't make it in. So you go back and look at the day and the time and figure out who you're provider is that's not logging stuff in the system. And then out of that 100 trips, 75 of them were transports. You went through them and sent them to Gary's uh, organization up at QMC. You validate that 75 actually got there and there's not a glitch in the computer system. Three pieces of QA system is dispatch to me, me to the billing office, and make sure that those tie out appropriately Otherwise, you'll find that you're not getting um, all the revenue you could. Medicare also looks at, at emergency versus routine. The definition of an emergency is that you immediately started, it was unscheduled and you immediately started transport um, based on the criteria and then the level of transport that you were asked to send based on the pre-arrival instructions and the dispatch criteria. Just because you have a medic on every truck does not mean you get to bill ALS-1 on every call. As a matter of fact, if you do that, you're asking to get hammered. Um, you can send them because that's staffing for you and that's the way you choose to do it, but it does not influence the transport priority and it does not implement, in, implement the billable uh, end of the, the type of call that you did when, when all of everything's done. It's, we sent a paramedic, but it was BLS, so we build BLS because that's what the service we provided to that patient. If you do anything other than that, you're asking to get clobbered um, down the road. Is the run form complete? You know, you know me as Bob Holdsworth. If you were taking me on the trip on the truck, it would have to be Robert L. Holdsworth Jr. Um, to match up to my insurance, to match up to my Medicare uh, type of thing. So you have to be able to do that. Um, I'll let you go in and look at the signatures and who can sign because a couple of things have changed, especially with PCS, just in, in are, are about to change. But facility staff, who can, it used to be anybody with a, you know, could fog a mirror could sign the trip. That doesn't work anymore. Now it has to be very specific. So that's a topic for another day. Validate to your crews that they have to, when you pick up that PCR and look at it a year from now, there should be a fairly clear progression to the and an answer to the question. They needed an ambulance because. If you can't answer that question, there's probably documentation deficiencies that need to be worked on. So talk to Gary, um, or and he can direct you either whether they do it or somebody else will do it. But you should get your people trained and your new people and things like that. 
Um, most people in the industry don't understand that we get paid for transportation. We don't get we don't get paid for medical treatment. We are paid for authorized, required, medically necessary transportation. We get a, a, an uptick when ALS services are provided because they know that supplies and paramedic salaries cost more. Uh, it has nothing to do with the level of care uh, it, since they went to uh, all compartmentalized billing uh, or uh, um, consolidated billing, not compartmentalized billing. So you're actually paid for transport. So you've got to justify why the patient needed an ambulance in order to get paid. Um, getting the money is nice. Can I keep it? Validating, and this is something the QMC's uh, organization does for you. Validating that the payment is correct. Is it for the right data service? If it's wrong, they'll tell you to refund it or you refund it. Regulations require that if there's an error in the in the payment structure, you have to make the refund within 60 days. Otherwise, you can get dinged for every single day you don't do it. Um, and it can be more than the bill. So that's where you want a compliance side in your billing office, which is what you have when you outsource to these guys. Um, if you haven't outsourced and you're doing it yourself and you're listening to this, um, you should make sure that that compliance is in place uh, with your billing office. Liability reduction, QA does help you do more than just the billing issue. It helps you with uh, you know, liability and being able to prove that if there was a screw up, it's not an anomaly. We are normally 98%, 99%. This was a strange call. And that helps your lawyer defend you. So budget versus actual, we talked about this. Do you look at the cash flow of budget throughout the course of the year? Um, are you getting the data? Do you understand the payer mix? And there are actually two payer mixes that you need to be aware of. So this is a really busy slide. I apologize, but there's no other good way to pull this report. But if you look down here where the arrow is pointing, you will see two numbers. And if you look across, uh, if you can see my screen, this is cash and charges. So this is the percentage of cash that the organization is bringing in over 12 months. This is the amount of write-offs and contractual allowances, so money you have to zero out the account, but you can't actually put in your bank. Now we add these two numbers together, your overall payer mix is 99.7. This is really important to go to a town hall and say, we're doing the best we can, and we can, we're almost at 100%. 59% of it's cash that we can use to run the service, because that's who's calling us and that's what insurance companies are paying us and what we're doing. 41% of it is a write-off. We can't do anything about that. That's why we have a shortfall. The overall collection rate is the efficiency of your billing office. Cash is a, is a direct reliance on and correlation to who's calling you in your service area. You should know both. Quickly analyzing, this is a provider of ours who wanted to know um, how much revenue they were bringing in um, and gross charges by unit uh, and whether or not there was, it was valuable for them to do it. Engine One is a paramedic engine company um, that typically went out and did not meet up with one of theirs. Excuse me, they would put that truck on when they were busy. So we analyzed the gross charges, we analyzed net revenue for each. Um, the reason for this overage here is because they, they actually ended up with two trips that were paid twice, once by the patient and once by the insurance company. So they were able to catch that piece. That's why that number is larger. Uh, they were really not that, that efficient. We didn't build trips three times. But what we looked at is the engine was, and then when you take the cost in the budget and you say, okay, well, what's it costing us to put that, that truck up? Can we make the determination that we should keep it or not? And Ambulance 4 was, in fact, um, used for standbys uh, and things like that. So it was generating revenue there. Um, did I see a question on this, Gary? Sorry, hand go up and come back down. Yeah. Sean, did uh, you have a question? A, no, I hit it by accident. Sorry. That's all Okay. Right. Just making sure. Understanding payer mix, every service is different. Every response area is different. If you provide service to more than one community, just to go back to what Gary was talking about earlier, you need to know what the demographics are in each of the communities because they are potentially very different. 
Um, and subsidies may be very different between one town and another. One size does not fit all. Um, what your retail price is really has no bearing. You need, and your government, government officials need to understand that retail pricing, what you publish as your rates, and what Medicare and Medicaid actually pay you are completely different, and what percentage of that volume. So here's how we do it. We took a report, and every year we would provide this to the clients. We would show them so they could show their community, and we would typically do three years running. So how many responses? So you can see that their call volume is increasing. Their billable call volume is increasing, but not crazy. The usage of their paramedics, roughly 50%. So okay, so that makes sense to have medics available, all right? This year was not complete when they ran the report, so we told them that there was still a percentage out there, but they've been running 98, 99% of cash and allowances, the total collection rate that I talked about. And the interesting part is you can see the cash beginning to decline. And well, why would that be? If you look at the payer mix, the payer mix is all over the map, but Medicare, Medicaid is up a little bit. Um, their insurance is up a little bit, but that normally would be good, except insurances take longer to pay. So especially with deductibles and things like that. So they need to understand this report. We give them background about the 80-20 rule and, and that percentage and the fact of what you can bill and what you can't bill as a, as a back piece so that the municipal leaders understand it. And then things you need to do is before you go and ask for money, you need to understand these things. I'm happy to answer questions after the fact. If you want to shoot me an email or whatever, I'll, I'll give it to you before we leave. If there's something that you want to talk about and you don't understand something I said, by all means, reach out, ask Gary, ask me. Um, but from any community, they're going to ask you, well, how much money do you make in my community? So mm -hmm. how many calls did you do in the community? What did you bill out gross? What did you actually collect net? What is the number of responses you have to staff for versus how many can we bill for? A term you need to understand is cost of readiness. That means I have to pay this, I have this truck sitting here, whether it does anything or not, and that costs money to have an ambulance ready when 911 rings. If you are in a volunteer community uh, or a nonprofit community, especially, and you're asking for money from your municipality, I strongly suggest that you show the municipal leaders the amount of calls that they that are done between six at night and six in the morning when they're home asleep. This is a 24-hour operation. We don't get the ability to close it down. Um, we are here when you're home sleeping, and that costs money. Be able to explain the information that we talked about and talked about talk about your QA process and talk about how you're squeezing the dollars and show them the two collection rates. So eight groups typically that need some explanation. Um, politicians probably being the most important one at this point that do not understand what we do, do not understand how it works, do not understand co-payments um, as evidenced by all the stuff in Congress. But your staff needs to understand this. They need to understand what their role is in doing good, good documentation. They, they need to understand that they don't get to come in, do the trauma code, come back, put their feet up, and the billing office will sort it out. Part of the job is documenting that call for their own safety, the safety of the organization, and the ability to keep their paychecks flowing. Um, educating the politicians, they want to see data. They want to see reports. They want to prove that the budget is as lean as it can be, but as robust as it needs to be. And they want to understand billing and collections. Uh, so explaining the payer mix and showing what you're doing to squeeze every dollar is important. Um, educating the public, what, are your, what can you provide? What, what's available, uh, ALS, BLS? Um, building your case based on the things we talked about earlier on in the program. Uh, critical. Open forums, you know, ask, um, bring people to the table, have an open house, talk about it. Go talk to the seniors, some one of your highest user groups. They will have questions. What hospitals can they go to? Um, how does Medicare work? Um, and have a good time with them and explain it to them. 
Um, got a couple slides left, Gary. Um, government and other audits. Medicare is coming back. They have something called RAC audits, recovery audit contractors, probably the closest to truth in advertising and government you'll ever hear. They're, they're going to do an audit. They're a contractor and they're, they're, they're going to recover funds, meaning they're looking to get money back. They come in and look at the money you've been you've given and the process you used, and they're looking to see if they can take anything back uh, that you shouldn't have gotten. Medicaid is the same. Uh, Department of Public Health, whatever you call it in your state, they're looking at your process and your record keeping and making sure that you can justify that you've done it to the standards that they expect. And the Consumer Protection or the AG's office is looking at consumer complaints about your pricing, be prepared to defend it, um, and whether or not you took them to the right hospital, whether you were transparent in your billing and things like that. Um, and, and so going from there. All of these things um, on the small bu bullets down below, solid QA program, job descriptions for anybody touching the trips, proof of audits, um, audit yourself or have your billing office do an audit of trips for you and give you feedback to show where you might have vulnerabilities so you can train up and not do that anymore. Um, the folks that, at QMC that are working on your accounts know where there are some issues, not getting signatures, uh, documentation that's not great, um, uh, using abbreviations that make no sense, uh, those types of things, all feedback that you can get that would make you stronger. Okay. If you're gonna go in a, a, a new community, these are this, this is this four slides. Um, there are eight things you need to know before going into a community. So to go back to Gary's story, these are the things they should have known before they said, we're going to get 500 calls and it's going to be awesome. Um, what is the deployment pattern? How many, how many hours of the day are they being asked to cover? What level of service are they being able to ask to cover? Because that goes back to the budget. Is BLS ALS one cost one? Are there, a, uh, in the contract, there should always be a quantity cap. You know, the first truck, is in town or is going to respond in eight minutes. The second truck is going to come from out of town, but it's going to be 12 minutes. And after that, we can't give you, can't guarantee you another truck. Um, as opposed to, we will provide ambulance service and respond within eight minutes. Well, a school bus accident with 20 victims, you're not getting that response in 20 minutes. You're asking for liability uh, and asking for service issues. Know the demographics. So, what's the typical age group in the community, uh, socioeconomically? Uh, are there geographic issues that are going to impact your response? Are there any times or penalties which work their way into clauses that if you're late, you're going to end up getting having to give them money back? Um, does the contract go up uh, a little bit each year uh, or is it fixed? And are there any things like you, every paramedic that works there has to have two years experience? The trucks can only have 100,000 miles on it or be three years old, um, et cetera. Because those, all, those types of things all impact your cost when you do a budget for that project. Um, so ask the questions. If, there's, if they're going to have a hearing to discuss whether or not uh, who is interested in taking over the service, sit down and ask them the questions. Uh, so it also helps you judge the competition, if there is competition. Um, we have a couple of case studies, but I'm not sure we necessarily have time for those, Gary. Uh, where are we in the, in the mix? Yeah, we should try to finish up soon, Bob. That's okay. okay. You're good. You're good, though. All right. I'll give you one. I'll take the middle one, the, the, um, the mixed community bid. Um, one of the service areas that I work in still today, there are two ambulance services that cover uh, some portion. There's two towns, and there's three ambulance services, and they each cover a section of one of the two towns. The service that's in the middle that covers two of the towns the most has all of the high-end homes um the high-end nursing homes they don't and they do about two thousand calls a year the service that i work for covers does almost six thousand calls a year and we have a lot of the housing projects and we have a lot of uh, the highways and what have you so we have a completely different demographic and a completely different payer mix than the other service. However, we both go to the same budget hearing every year asking for subsidies. And the town, it took five years to educate the town boards as to why 
the payer mix was what it was, why the subsidy requests were different, um, and what the realities of doing of providing ambulance service in each section of the same town and the neighboring town actually was. And now it's to the point where the agencies are subsidized differently based on their need. But it took time to educate based on everything I just talked about for the last hour. So if you have any questions, feel free to reach out to us. Uh, feel free to reach out to Gary. Um, I will uh, this afternoon send a PDF to Gary and he'll figure out a way to distribute it if you'd like to see these slides again. Uh, one thing we've focused for 30 years on keeping agencies growing and healthy and what have you. And my career is taking a little bit of a different path along with that. And we've launched something new that I wanted to, with Gary's indulgence, be able to bring to you. Sure. And that is Healthy Responders, uh, where we are now focusing on not only the agencies, but more importantly, the providers and looking at ways to help people get healthy, stay healthy, um, deal with PTSD issues. Uh, so that is going to be evolving over the next several months as we launch different pieces of this. But I just wanted to put it on everybody's radar. So healthyresponders.com is, is there. And uh, I am now officially out of breath and out of slides. So. <laughs> well, I told Bob, you we were going to have to hit the ground running with this. No problem. You did great. Thank you so much, Bob. And thanks to all of you who attended. Uh, as Bob noted, he will be sending me the PDF version of uh, the presentation. And we also will be, uh, with some minor editing, uh, be putting this out on one of our podcasts here very soon. So if you would like a copy, feel free to drop me a line at uh, gharvat at quickmedclaims.com or give me a call. Uh, or also our podcast, you can look, search the board and call our uh, podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, iHeartRadio. They're all out there. We've got over uh, 104 or five different episodes out there. We'd love to have you join in and follow us. Uh, but thanks to all of you who attended today. Bob, thank you for the very informative presentation. It was great. And with that, I'll just say one more thing, folks, be safe out there. Hey!